Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. journey through Hebrews. Uh, we, we, I try to do this at least once a year, maybe a couple of times a year, where instead of having a topical series, we actually go through a book of the Bible together. I think both are important. Topical series, we can actually like get to the heart and answer questions and speak to, to specific things that we as a, a group are going through with uh Going through a book of a Bible, we there's no dodging the hard topics. There's a, a we get to build biblical literacy. God gets to speak through His Word. It's a different style of preaching, a different style of sermon series. But I think they're both important, and so I try to mix both of them in as we go through and I, I plan our sermon series out for the year. So today we start through Hebrews. Um, I encourage you. You have, I think it's four or five weeks where you get to read the book of Hebrews at home. You can do a Bible study online. You can do. Go through that so we can, we're all going through this book together. Today, I want to look at the whole first chapter and even the beginning of chapter two. So buckle up. (laughs) No, but it's a, life can come at you fast. Uh, Lauren talked about briefly how we got to go to our family's like lake cabin in uh, Alabama. It's like a middle of nowhere absolutely zero phone service. Just recently did they have internet and TV installed. So we're like, I was like, okay, I'm going to get to put up my hammock and read my book while uh, the girls can, can be entertained by their tablet. Okay, don't judge me. There's some times where I want some peace. Well, that didn't happen. Power went out 2.30 in the morning, night one. All right, there was no internet or TV. It was great. We had time to connect, time together, and but it was not what I thought it was going to be, but it's still absolutely fantastic, right? The weather got a little bit better. We got to go for some hikes, take the girls fishing. All great. We're on the way home. It's We're running from a storm. We know the storm is coming. We can see it. We left a little bit early because we knew another storm was coming through. We're like 30 minutes on the wrong side of Atlanta, right? The Alabama side of Atlanta, an hour away from home. That we were approaching Atlanta, so we just went from two lanes to three. Now we're in four lanes. I'm not in the fourth lane, okay? I'm not deliberately breaking the law, but I am speeding, okay? So I'm in the third lane, second from the right. And we're going, and then we hear boom, do, 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 Had a blowout, right? Right side, passenger, rear tire, blew out. I have to cross 
three lanes, moving traffic, approaching Atlanta. We're able to get to the side of the road. Hasn't started raining yet, but we know it's coming. So we're trying to pull out the manual, trying to find the spare tire. Can't figure out how to get to it from the manual, so I'm just going to wing it and and figure it out. Get to the back. There's this little tab that says spare. Okay, pop it open, lower the spare from under the car, change the tire out, put the spare on it. We get back on the road. We're on the road for less than a minute, and the spare goes flat. Oh, Lord. So then we have to get over an hour away from home. Family came to the rescue. We took the tire to a nearby tire shop, bought a new one, had it replaced, put the wheel on, made it home. Okay, all this to say, life was grand, and out of nowhere, we're hit with a flat tire. Now, it's trivial, right? As I was changing the tire, yes, it was pouring down rain the last time. Yes, it was miserable. Yes, I didn't sleep that night because I was so sore and tired from this whole event because I'm on the side of 20, it's stressful. But I've kept telling myself over and over again, life could be much worse, right? Uh, this, this was trivial, but life comes at you fast. And that we could be going, life can be going great, everything could be grand, and then out of nowhere, tragedy can strike. We've seen it this week, the two tragedies we saw in the ocean with the, the, the submersible that imploded, and then you also had the boat of like hundreds of immigrants that crashed. And, uh, I mean, tragedy can strike out of nowhere. The grand scheme of things, a flat tire is not that bad. But we all know what it's like to just be hit with life. Whether it's a stressful event at work or something going on with the family, life can hit us and we don't know what to do. And so when we look at scripture, when we look at the Bible, we know that God his, he gave his life for us. He know that he wants the best for us. We know that he wants us to have full satisfaction and joy in him. We know that God loves us. But when we face these times of doubt or these times of fatigue or these times of tragedy, what do we do? If God is so committed to our joy and our glory, if he loves us so much, then why does it seem like so often our lives are so hard? And the truth is, the tagline is, it's a journey of faith because life is this journey. And as we look through Hebrews, we see that there's this journey of faith that happens, this journey from weariness into rest, this journey, this journey from alienation into the presence of God, from isolation into community. And the only way that we're able to make that journey, the only way we're able to make that leap from, from hardship to glory to, to that to rest in community in the presence of God is when we fix our eyes on Jesus. It's not a sprint. It's a steady fixing our eyes on him no matter what. In fact, when, he's, when Tim Keller summarizes the book of Hebrews, that's how he summarizes it. It's this journey, this steadfast, this staying focused on Jesus, despite the fact that, yes, life can bring us down. The context of of the book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it. Some people think it might be Paul or Timothy or Barabbas. Some people think it might be Priscilla. There's all kinds of debates in the scholarly world about who could have written Hebrews. And out of all those names, most of those have been debunked, but there's arguments for each one of them and there's arguments for other authors. The, The truth is we don't know. And we don't know who they're writing to, but we know the type of people that they're writing to. And that's why the book gets the name Hebrews. This is written to a group who are believers. They have given their life to Jesus, but they come out of the Hebrew faith. Either they were Greeks who have been converted and now are uh, know the Hebrew Bible like fellow Jews, or they're Jews who have been converted. We know that it is before the destruction of the temple, 
because that is like the biggest event and it's not mentioned. So we know that if it's not mentioned, it hasn't happened yet. We know that it's a third generation, second or third generation. It's not the disciples. It's not the apostles. So we know it's after them. So we have this little window, like 80-50 to 80-70, when we know this book was written. And this is important because we know that Christians in this time were facing immense persecution. And that they had this pull because the temple was still there to still go back to abandon their faith in Christ and go back not to atheism, not to abandon their faith, but go back to a Jewish faith where they're practicing the sacrifice of animals in the temple. So they have this culture around them that is persecuting them from being a Christian. Life has come at them fast. And they have this temptation to go back to abandon their faith now and go back to the way things were things used to be. And I think we can relate, right? We're not tempted to go back to our Jewish faith, but we get in times where life gets difficult, things happen, our faith gets hard, and we're tempted to abandon our faith. We're tempted to walk away from the word. We're tempted to try to do life on our own, go back to the way things we used to do things. And the writer of Hebrews is writing into that situation. The author of Hebrews the purpose of their letters, they were concerned that those in this faith community were close to abandoning their faith, and even some of them had already done so. They write to remind these believers to, to stay steadfast on the superior of Christ over everything. He's writing to Christians who are wavering in their faith, and he challenges them to remain committed to their confession and to bear the suffering with patient endurance. Rather than becoming discouraged with what's going on around them, he wants them to look to Christ and the heroes of faith that have gone before them. So let's jump into the text, all right? Verse one, Hebrews one, verse one, it says that in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So we see that long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke. He spoke through their fathers. He spoke through the prophets. He spoke through all kinds of different ways. So verse 1.1, 1. 1, God speaks, all right? Christians believe in a God who is a speaking God. We would not be here if it weren't for a God that speaks. The story of Revived Church, the story of Laura and I coming to, to Covington is because God spoke to us. We, we felt this release from our youth ministry that we were in, but we didn't know what was next. So the pastor there was gracious. He let us stay. I, I would preach once a month. We were on, I was on the worship team. We would help. We were serving, but we didn't know what was next for us. And it was in this season of waiting and trying to hear from God and figure out what he wanted for us. And, and God began to stir in my heart, what if you moved to Covington to start a church? And this was a big step for us, and it was something that would actually take Lauren five hours from her family. So we decided we, I was decided that I wasn't going to ask her to do that. I was like, God, if you want this to happen, you've got to call her like you've calling me. And it wasn't two days later, we're in the kitchen cooking dinner. I think we were listening to music, dancing, doing something. And she says, you know, what if we move to Georgia and plant a church? Like, man, God had confirmed something right there. She had no idea what I'd been thinking, praying about, asking God about. And then a couple of days later, I was going up for my last uh, stint as a staff for the youth camp that week, that week. And we're going up for middle school camp. And I get a phone call from the district superintendent at that time saying, hey, we're wanting to start a church in the Conyers area. Have you thought about this? I was just like, let me tell you. <laughs> let me tell you how God has been speaking, right? And we actually moved down here 
We were going to plant in Conyers. We started everything in Conyers. We took our prayer retreat to the same cabin we just got back from. And God said, no, you're going to Covington. So all of this, everything about Revive, the name of Revive, our vision at Revive, the fact that we came here from South Carolina, it all was because God was speaking to us. Christians believe in a God who speaks. We see it from the very first chapter of the Bible. The Bible was punctuated with the phrase, and God said. Creation came out of God speaking the words, let there be light. His words, his speaking is the creation of our world. In the New Testament, we see that the title of Jesus is the Word. Psalm 19 says that God has spoken through the created world. In the book of Job and Elijah, we see that God speaks in a whisper. We see that God is speaking over and over again. And think about from the perspective of the people that the, the author is writing to, right? They know their Old Testament like the back of their hand. They know it inside and out. And the Hebrew writer writes it, quotes the Old Testament more than almost any other book in the New Testament. We're going to get there, right? And so the, the writers are thinking, yeah, God speaks. It says through the, the prophets and the fathers, God speaks through the Old Testament. He speaks through the law. He speaks through the prophets. He speaks through poetry. He speaks through the history. All throughout the pages of the Old Testament, God has spoken. That's how these people have gotten their Bible. They don't have the New Testament yet. When they study scripture, they're studying the Old Testament and maybe a copy of a letter from Paul that found its way to them at this point, right? They are studying the Old Testament and that is how God speaks to them. So they hear this, this, this phrase, they hear this letter, this word that says, long ago, God has spoken many ways and in various times. And they're like, yeah, amen, God speaks. And then the writer drops this bomb that says, yeah, but in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The last days is, is talking about Jesus. We have our, our first reference here. This is saying that Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension marks the rest of history. In the middle of history, God stepped down out of heaven and came to earth. And so in the last days, it's the moment that Jesus ascends until the end of time when he returns. So that's what it's in the last days, God has spoken to us by his son. He is saying that Jesus is the final word. So in this moment, when they're facing persecution, when they're facing the difficulties, when they're tempted to abandon Christ and go back to the sacrificial system, they're being told that, no, Jesus is what has been said. Jesus is the last word. These Christians were wrestling with their faith, wrestling, being, being drawn back to their Jewish background. And the writer is saying that God is, they're not wrestling whether God is real. They're wrestling with whether Jesus is the real Messiah. They were being tempted to rely on the old way of God speaking. But God has spoken a new word and a final word. Now, if you're like me, I read that and I was like, okay, but what about the Holy Spirit? Like, what about God speaking now? Like, surely, I mean, I've illustrated this by saying that the Holy Spirit speaks a new thing now. So if Jesus is the final word, what do we do? Is, does the Holy Spirit still speak to us? Let me just say that the writer addresses that later in chapter 2. Verse 4, it says, At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles, the distribution, the distribution of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. The writer is not saying that God stops speaking. He's saying that the final authority, the ultimate explanation, the the end all be all is Jesus Christ. 
the gifts, the words spoken that to your heart, the nudges from the Holy Spirit, those things are all real, but they will all eventually be back to Jesus. They point to the advancement of the gospel. Maybe the Holy Spirit asks you to move to a new city and start a new church. Maybe he asks you to find a new career. Maybe he asks you to begin new relationships. That new thing is new to you, but it all is for the reason of advancing Jesus' name. The gifts you receive are about advancing the gospel. They are about proclaiming the name of Jesus and shining his light forward into the darkness of our world. So if you receive, you guys may have been in an experience where somebody says, I got a word of the Lord for you, right? I I can remember I was uh, working at Starbucks one time and I ran across an old friend and he was very Pentecostal and I think we can learn something from them. Okay, so that's not a dig. Okay, I'm for that. Okay, but but he came up to me and said, I got a word from the Lord that one day you're going to have, I don't even remember what, like you're going to have people that you're training and they're working under you. And, And there was this moment where I could see that like he saw me working at Starbucks and thought that was too low for what I was doing. And I just was like, I mean, I'm kind of right where God wants me. That's great if you want it. And I say that to say like, maybe, maybe it was because it was about Jesus. But if somebody comes to you and they're like, I have a word from the Lord to you and it tears you down or it says, you know what, you're going to be rich or you're going to be famous or everything is going to work out exactly how you want it to. Like those, maybe they're encouraging you, probably not a word from the Lord, right? Now, if they come and they say, you're going to sow richly into the kingdom or God's going to use you for his utmost glory, or you're going to make the name of Jesus famous, maybe it is, all right? So the the Holy Spirit speaks, but it can always be filtered through the Bible, and it should always be pointing to Jesus. That's what he's getting at. There's nothing new that's added to Scripture. The Bible, the New Testament, and the Old Testament are settled. There's no new revelation. Everything is for Jesus and about Jesus, And then he makes his point. He goes in and says, God speaks. His favorite thing to talk about is Jesus. He he loves to talk about his son. It is all about Jesus. God still speaks through the Holy Spirit, but it can always be traced back to him. The the, The way that God used to speak in the Old Testament, it was plentiful, but it was incomplete. In Christ, all is complete. Sin is defeated. The keys to death have been revoked and victory is won. God speaks and his favorite thing to talk about is Jesus. Then he goes into some of my favorite scripture in all of the Bible. All right, and this is verses, the end of verse two into chapter four. One theologian calls this nosebleed Christology, right? Because the view of Christ in this passage is so high up. It's like the nosebleed section at a, at a football game, right? Because it's got this view of Jesus being so elevated. If you get in a place in your life where you feel like you're struggling to hear from Jesus or to see Jesus work in your life, I challenge you, just go to this passage and read verses one through four and just read about how it proclaims the name of Jesus, what it says about Jesus and read it, memorize it, write it down, and then go read the gospels with this as your lens. It will transform the way that you see your savior. It's so glory-filled. He comes in with these, it's, it's one, two sentences, and it's like seven proclamations about who Jesus is. It says this, starting with the, at the middle of verse two, it says, whom he appointed heir of all things, talking about Jesus, he's heir of all things. Through him also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. 
And after he had provided the purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. I've, lived, I've seriously saw a pastor preach a four-week sermon on that passage. Four weeks, same thing. That's how rich this is. I'm not doing that. I'm going to highlight a couple, okay? But he, he has these seven things that he proclaims about Jesus. He's the heir of all things, the agent of creation, radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's being. He's the sustainer of all things through his powerful word. He provides the purification of sin, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. All of these about Jesus. He's the heir of all things, all land, all water, all air, all resources. If Jesus is the heir to all of it. And this is huge because if Jesus is the final word, which the writer just talked about, then being the heir of all things mean he, means that he can make good on his word. So when Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth, we can't come back and say, okay, well, how are you going to give them the earth? Jesus says, I can give them the earth because I own it. He is the heir of all things. Or when he says nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, neither life or death, angels or demons, fear for today or worries for tomorrow, not even the evil powers of hell. How can he make that promise? How do we know that we can trust that for our future? Because he owns it. He is the heir of all things. Or what about his promise that the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more pain or crying because the former things have passed away. We can know that there will be no more death because he owns it. Death enters to him. Pain enters to him. He has the final word and it will be no more because he is the heir of all things. The promise of our future is guaranteed because the word, meaning Jesus, The word can make good on his word because he owns it all. Agent of creation means he was there at the beginning. We see that in Genesis, the radiance of God's glory. This this will make you worship. Okay, I hope this will make you worship. If we think about God's glory in the Old Testament, because remember that's who he's writing to, how does it show up in the Old Testament? It's this pillar of fire that leads God's people out of Egypt. And the day it's like a fire cloud, kind of smoky at night, it's like clearly fire, almost in the, the form of a person. And they follow this out. And there's this point where that fire actually appears and stops the Egyptian army in its track. We see that Moses, when he goes up on Mount Sinai to, to hear the, um, get the, the Ten Commandments and hear from the Lord, that he's surrounded by this fire glory cloud. The people can't even touch the mountain lest they die. The temple, when it's dedicated, this fire glory cloud comes down and fills it, and everybody who's around it can't even stand. They're forced to their knees. What is this pillar? What is this fire, this cloud? It's the glory of God in a form that we could see and almost understand. It's a form that expresses his beauty, his brilliance, his infinite, overwhelming, expectation-shattering, life-altering, transcendent magnificence. Yes, I used a thesaurus, okay? It was that important. Like, this is God's glory. We can't even hardly wrap our mind around it. And Jesus is saying, now when we look at him, we get to see that radiant glory. We can know the glory of God by looking at Jesus. 
Uh, Keller again points out, he illustrates this really cool. We can't even look at the sun, right? If we look at the sun, you stare at it, it'll destroy your eyesight. <laughs> How much greater is God's glory? We can't even be in the presence of its unlimited glory because then we would die. We would be destroyed. But in Jesus, we have our chance to fix our eyes on the radiance of God's glory. The exact representation of God's being. This is the, the, that exact representation is this character. The word is actually like the Greek word is character. And you could think in terms of uh, a wax stamp. Have you guys ever seen those things? Right? You put the matte wax on a lamp yeah. or on a letter and you heat it up a little bit. Then yeah. the, the emblem on the bottom of the stamp is called the character. Mm-hmm. And so when you press it down in the wax, you get an exact character of what's on the stamp. Yeah. This, Jesus is the exact character of God's being. His whole essence is in Jesus. He's the sustainer of all things, provider of purification of our sins. He sits at the right hand of the Father. When you come into church to worship on Sunday mornings, when you sit down to pray at home, in your car, wherever you're at, is that the picture of Jesus that you have in your mind? Does it bring you to your knees in all of worship of him? He's so elevated above all and in all. He is above anything we could think, anything we could imagine. He is the greatest thing, and he should be the object of our worship. For us, the next part can be kind of lost in translation, because especially in the West, we don't really have this huge view of angels. But that's where the author goes. In verse four, he says, so he became much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now, when I got to this part of the passage, I had some questions. First off, like angels, why, this comes out of left field to me. Like why in the world, where did he bring angels out of this? And what we have to understand is the readers of this letter had this elevated view of angels. Like he's been elevating Jesus. They have angels in this aspect of their worldview. The original recipients of this would have, would have heard that and be like, oh, angels. Angels, listen, I could preach two messages on angels. I learned so much reading this stuff, but it would kind of bore you because it would be lectures. Let me just give you some highlights, okay? We don't view angels as mighty as we should. We don't. We, have, we kind of have separated spirituality from a lot of how we experience the world and the rest. And in the West, But the spiritual realm is very real. Angels are very real and they're not timid. They're not cupid. They're not flying around with little wings, shooting you with arrows to help you fall in love. Okay, that's not angels. Even the angels that you see that are like on tombstones that have the the white robe and the blonde hair and the fair skin and the wings, that is not a biblical example of angels. In fact, whenever an angel in the Bible has human form, they don't have wings. The only time they have wings in scripture is when they're, terrifying, like multiple eyes, multiple wings, bodies of heads of different animals will scare the daylights out of you, okay? They're not some timid creature. They are awe and awesome and powerful and dangerous and they're terrifying, okay? That's an angel. And humans, I want to say this with love because I know that oftentimes when we lose a loved one, there's this grieving that we're the process that we do, where we say they gain their wings, they become an angel. Like, I want to say this with love, but that's not biblical truth. When a human dies, they 
do go to be with Jesus if they follow him. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, for today you're with me in paradise. Paul said that to die is to be with Christ, okay? But they don't turn into angels. Angels are a separate created being. Humans are different than angels. When humans die, they're still humans. Angels don't die, all right? They're immortal. They they live forever. Humans are redeemed at Jesus' death. Angels don't get redeemed, right? The fallen angels, we call them demons, they stay fallen until they're thrown into the fire, okay? That's how it is. They, they don't, they're not redeemed. Angels don't get redeemed. They're not human. They're, humans don't become angels. We don't gain wings. That's just not how it works. Angels are this awe-inspiring, incredible creatures, incredible beings that God has created. And so that's how the people that are reading this text, they view that they have angels way up here. And he's saying that Jesus is even greater than angels. Now he says that Jesus becomes greater than angels. That was really hard for me to read because I was like, what do you mean? Jesus is God. He's eternal. He wasn't created. He's always been there. He's always been a part of the Trinity. How does he become greater than angels? Jesus becomes greater than angels in his humanity. You've got to remember that he's, he started this talking about how God speaks. Stay with me for a minute, okay? I know we're, <laughs> but stay with me. We're unpacking the text, okay? So he, he starts talking about how God speaks. And when he starts talking about angels, people are, the, the hearer, readers of this letter are immediately taken back to where angels are involved and how God speaks throughout the Old Testament. We miss it because a lot of times when we hear about how God um, gave his law, we think about the story in Exodus where Moses is up on the mountain in the fire of glory cloud, and it doesn't mention the angels. But Deuteronomy 33 and Psalm 98, 68, 68 talks about how there is a myriad of angels in that moment. It says tens of thousands, thousands of thousands of angels are present when God gives his law. So the, the, Israel, or the readers of this letter are like, okay, God, the angels are there when God gives his law. What does that law communicate? That law is communicating a way to live with God. <clears throat> God is an awesome, powerful, holy God. God is just and righteous, and his people are not. His people are fallen, a fallen people. God's desire from the moment of creation has been to dwell with his people. That's how everything was in the garden. It was perfect. They were walking in the cool of the day. Humans were meant to be with their creator forever and always in his presence. But they were given the option to choose. And they chose that they didn't want God in charge. They wanted themselves in charge. And in that moment, sin enters the picture. And God can't let a sinful people be in his presence without payment for that sin. Otherwise, he is no longer just and he's no longer holy. So God has to cast them out of the garden. And when he casts them out of the garden, what does he do? He sets up angels to guard the garden. And these are the scary angels with the wings and the eyes, like cherubim is what they're called, right? These are the the terrifying angels. They're guardian angels, but they're not guarding people. They're guarding the garden from people getting into the garden, right? God's presence can't be with sinful people. And this breaks his heart because he wants to be amongst his people. So what does he do? He, he has the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, and God comes in and he puts his presence on earth and the Holy of Holies inside this Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant has got all this incredible work of art on it that's been sculpted out and, and made, inspired by the Spirit, it tells us, to make it look wonderful. And you know what artwork is on it? The cherubim. 
Once again, those keep out angels are on the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence is located. Eddie Lee has this children's book that has this phrase that says, because of your sin, you can't come in, right? And it's really easy to remember. Because of sin, they can't be in the, the literal presence of God, but he still wants to be with his people. So he sends his presence with them, guarded by angels. Then later on, the temple was built. They put this, the Ark of the Covenant in the room called the Holy of Holies. And this Holy of Holies has these big curtains that's keeping the rest of the world out from where God's presence is. Can you guess what's on the curtains, right? The terrifying angels. <laughs> there, there are all kinds of artwork, once again, saying you can't come in. God's presence is here. He's dwelling with you, but you're not allowed in because of your sin. So what does this have to do with Jesus? How does he become greater? God still desired to dwell with his people. So Jesus, even though he's eternal, even though he's always been, even though he's always been greater than the angels, he did something special. He lowered himself, becoming human, and he came to earth. And in his humanity, we'll see in chapter four, he, he faced everything we face, been tempted in every way that we have been tempted, yet he did not sin. In his perfection, he went to the cross. He gave up his life. He knew that he who knew no sin became sin. He suffered the shame that came from dying on the cross. He suffered the humiliation that came from the crucifixion. He died that death. And you know what happened when he died? That curtain with those angels ripped in two and fell to the ground. How did Jesus become greater in his humanity? He redeemed people. He paid the price for their sin that wouldn't let them come in. And now God can dwell with his people once again. He can fill them with his spirit because that sin has been paid for. The price has been dealt. The consequences has been felt. And people can now dwell with their creator God because of the price that Jesus paid. Jesus and his humanity became superior to the angels because he accomplished what they could not. Angels were... Angels were there when the law was delivered. Jesus fulfilled the law. Angels were there to keep humanity out of the presence of God. Jesus was there to let us in. Angels were sent to serve. Jesus was sent to save. And the rest of the chapter unpacks that. I'm not going to go into all of that because I know this is going long, but I want to I highlight some things, okay? Because the whole rest of this chapter one is saying, look at how Jesus is greater than angels. He's taking the most elevated thing in their eyes and saying, Jesus is better than that. And he does it by quoting tons of scripture. He quotes Psalm 2, 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, Deuteronomy, Psalm 104, Psalm 45, Psalm 102, Psalm 110. He quotes all of those passages of scripture in, the, in verses 5 through 14, all right? It's a And we miss it if we're not careful when we read over it. He does all of this to point to how angels are greater, or how Jesus is greater than angels. Some of the things he says is that angels are created while Jesus is the creator. Yes, angels are immortal. They live forever, but they haven't existed forever. They're not eternal. Jesus is eternal. He's always been. Angels worship. Jesus is to be worshiped. Angels were created by God, and therefore in the Old Testament, they're often referred to as sons of God. Jesus is the son of God. And then as previously mentioned, angels were sent to serve, and Jesus was sent to save. I want to highlight this, okay? Stay with me, because this is really cool. It's really cool. 
If we look at verses 13 and 14, we see a contrast between Jesus and the angels, how angels were called to serve and Jesus was called to save. We see Psalm 110 is quoted here. Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted Psalms in the New Testament. It's fantastic. The New Testament church loved it. I loved it. Go home and read Psalm 110. But it says in Psalm 110, it says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet. This is Jesus ascended into heaven. He is now king of the cosmos. He is the king of the world. And all that he has all authority has been given to him. Uh, every evil enemy has now been a footstool under his feet. He's been given authority over every bad thing. So what are the enemies of Jesus? We think about the demons, the fallen angels. We think about false ideas and doctrine. We think about unrepentant sin. We think about evil people who, have, who are manipulated and by the evil forces at at work. And all of them, all of that evil is under the footstool of Jesus. On the cross, he defeated those things and they are being brought under his authority, under his footstool. And how is that happening? It's happening in verse 14, but the angels ministering spirits, their angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. The angels are doing the bidding. The angels are doing the serving. They're bringing those enemies under the footstool of Jesus. The best way I could think to illustrate this was after Lauren's dad passed away. When he passed away, there's lots of conversations and stuff happening, but we had a chance to kind of get away. And we get to her grandparents' house, and we're just sitting in the driveway, looking at the garage, sitting in the car, debriefing everything, talking about everything. And we kind of had some realizations. We, Lauren's dad, for a long time, was running from the Lord. And we prayed, I prayed for over a decade, Lauren prayed for most of her life, that he would know Christ and follow him, that he would surrender his life. And he came really close a lot of times. There was times where he would like ask for Bibles and Lauren would like put together a care package and mail a Bible and some things up to him when we were in college. There came times where he would ask me to run him to the store to get things like alcohol. And um, he would ask me these deep theological questions that he was wrestling with, right? There, there was times where he just, he got so close, Lauren would be on the phone talking to him till like one o'clock in the morning and he's just resisting and fighting it. And all those years of resisting, there were so many times, so many events and occasions where it could have all ended for him. I mean, I'm talking about car accidents, multiple There was one time he had this infection in his leg. It like doubled in size and like started to travel to other parts of his body. There were times where he made really stupid and dangerous life decisions that almost killed him multiple times. In the decade, over a decade that I'd known Lauren, there were multiple times where we could not believe he was still alive. It was almost like he had a guardian angel that was keeping him alive until he had this moment to surrender his life to Christ, which eventually happened. One day in that very garage we were looking at, I got to have a conversation with him. I asked him why he was running, and he just kept saying, I'm ready. He said he was tired of running. And in that moment, he prayed and surrendered his life to Christ. It was almost like he had a guardian angel keeping him alive until it was time for him to inherit salvation. I'm not saying that each of us has a guardian angel. Okay, I don't think that's right theology. What I am saying is scripture teaches that all the enemies are being brought under the footstool of Jesus and the angels are working. They're working now in this room. They're working in our city. The, The spiritual realm is very real and they are there and they are doing the bidding of King Jesus to bring the enemies under his footstool. They are fighting 
for the, and ministering to those who will inherit salvation. They are serving humans. But it's the angels who serve and the Jesus who saves. Angels are amazing, awe-inspiring, dangerous, perilous beings. I hope I've made that clear. But Jesus is greater than angels. And then it gets into chapter two where we get the first of five warning messages. I'm not going to go into all of that, okay? But he warns them, do not drift away. Do not drift away from your faith. Life comes at you fast. The trials, the hardships, the countercultural lifestyle, they can all put us in a place where we're being tempted to be pulled away from Christ. When we face times of doubt and fatigue, we still have a source of hope. Will we, in, will we never find, and we will never find anything better to anchor us than Christ. He is worthy of our full devotion. He is the human incarnation and the image of God. Our hardship should not be our primary focus. Instead, we are called to turn our focus on Jesus. God speaks, and when he speaks, he points to his son, because Jesus is greater than anything you could think or imagine. Yes, including angels. I want to close with a quote from John Barry's New Testament theologian. When when talking about the book of Hebrews, he says this, Although God once spoke through mere mortals, he has now spoken through his Son, who is the heir of all things. Jesus, through whom is the creator of the world. Therefore, let us set aside sin and cling to Jesus. Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus, who himself bore the cross. Jesus, who who bore the unwarranted shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I know this message was long. I know we talked about a lot, but I hope that you have an understanding of how great angels are and how even much greater Jesus is. I pray that you enter in times of worship throughout this week as you read this book of Hebrews and study it, as you're in conversations, as you're listening to worship music, as you're praying when you come in next week. I hope that you have this elevated view of who Jesus is because that's the only way you will make it through the times when life comes at you fast. When you're facing those circumstances, let's elevate and preach Jesus to ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you that you gave it all. We thank you, Jesus, that you are our Savior.